this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? And uh, and we're off. We're running. Uh, it's uh, good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are again. Hello, you. Hello, you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having my first coffee. Uh huh. And it's a really good one. Has it got some superfood mud? Of course, stuff? I've got it's. Um, I've got a mushroom coffee. It's a mix of a really strong decaf French roast and then mushroom coffee. We should have a conversation. Um, at some point about Harleman's aphorism 260. The footnote to 260. And what's available today. That's, you know, those medicinal <laughs> we things. We did do that. We already did that. Yeah, but not in the context of, you know, mud. Oh, you mean substitutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The oh. kinds of things that I, you know, find you, the powders and the things that I find you putting <laughs> All the in potions. your food. All the potions. All the potions. That's what's keeping you going. Nobody would guess you were 84 years old. I'm having my chai. <laughs> Delicious. Yum. Anyway, so um, I, uh, I want to talk to you because um, I think last time we spoke, we talked about the submission of your thesis. Yeah. And straight after that, or yeah. you know, within a, a hot minute, you were flying or we were flying off to... The JAHC conference, and yeah. so I want to I want to hear what what you've you know because yeah, like one's for the muggles and one's not. And yeah, I got to present my thesis, um, taking the muggle lens off so that I could, you know, really talk about what it means for homeopathy, which was amazing. Um, can we talk about the just the conference experience first, and then we'll talk about that content? Sure. Just a couple of things. First of all, I'm still, well, for me personally, I think my adrenals are still regulating after months of just pushing it. Mm. Um, I am not a sleeping in person, and I've slept in two times until eight o'clock since I've been back. That's... Quel horror. I know. Maybe it wasn't eight o'clock, but it was close. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Mm. I don't even do that when I was a teenager. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's just not my bio clock. Uh. Um, but I think part of part of it with the conference is... There's so much energy. Mm. It's amazing. Mm. Um, it was amazing to meet people who listen to our podcast. I oh, was yeah. like, wow, it's you. <laughs> um, right. Thank you for that. We totally appreciate it. Um, but it was, you know, there's something about being in a place where everyone is there because they love homeopathy mm. and they believe in home. It's not so much that they love it. They believe in homeopathy and are in some way committed to its furtherance. Mm. People might disagree on how they do that, and that's subject for discussion or no discussion. But at the end of the day, it is really important. And I think it's um, it's like, like being at Hogwarts, where you would go, oh, I don't have to pretend anything. <laughs> I just like let my homeo roar. I could just right. be who I am. I mean, there is really... I can put on my outfit. Oh, the outfits are always good, and the dancing mm. is always good. But there is something about it that um, the conversations are very—they're very serious about what do we what do we do to really further this modality in the United States. I just want to acknowledge that. I mean, I think it's really important to kick off by saying that. Mm. I find that to be incredibly inspiring. You don't have anything to say to that? You're just looking at me. Did you go to your happy place? <laughs> you were watching cricket in your head, weren't no, you? No, I wasn't actually. I was thinking about what you just... I was not I was surprised that that's where you've gone uh, early in our conversation. I, I just think mm. that is something that stays with me. Um, also, I mean, it is... Uh, how do we grow this thing? Which thing? Uh, homeopathy in the United States. What are you talking about? Is it... Th that's what you just said, right? No. No, but well, I guess I did in a way. You did. I, I mean, but not directly. That's not, it, it is about that, but it is also, I think it's less than, I guess I'm not really even talking about an ask because everybody, everybody's there sort of has a mission in some way. Right. 
they might just be there in support. It might be someone who's a student who says, I'm just learning about this, but I'm I'm committed. I think I think what I'm acknowledging is the energy of commitment totally. that people bring to the table. Yep, yep, hundred percent. That. Mm. And people are are there there are tensions because people are trying to figure out how to how to pull things forward. Mm. Right? There is that. But there's also this incredible love. I mean I, there are some surprises of people that I can't believe I didn't see for an entire year mm. um, who I just love hanging out with. You know, the first day is all the ah screaming and hugging and you just you just can't believe you get to be around a person. And so many people that I really just think are amazing that I got to spend three minutes talking to in the hallway. But sort of, you know, you're there, you're busy, you're, you know, we were in meetings a lot. I mean, I was in mm. meetings a ton, mm-hmm. you know, everything from board meetings to association meetings to, you know, meetings with individual people that I needed to be face to face with and, you know, go for a walk with or sit somewhere quietly with like that, that kind of thing. It's very, very busy. Right, you were at the booth a lot of the time. What was your experience like? Just that and more, and uh, and it's really interesting because I, I here's what I do love. I really love meeting uh, our students. Yeah, who you know, and that that's just a joy because we see them so often in their Zoom daily, square, but in their Zoom square. And so, um, you know, that's that was hilarious. Oh, my gosh. We had so much fun. And then, of course, there's other folks like, who are you? Like, no idea who we are. I am. And um, and so it's it, 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 I find it really interesting to um, go about describing, say, myself or um, AHE or uh-huh. Hong Foundation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I find myself thinking as I'm talking, going, that sounded really weird. Or... Gee, what a really good description of of uh, who it is that we are. So there's that, and then there's the there's the folks that we've known a thousand years, like Dana. That's like <laughs> Dana Ullman. Oh my god, who is just oh. just fun to hang out with, full of trivia and information, and pretty hilarious. Well, I mean, and and then the opposite of trivia as well. So some really really solid and important information. Oh but, yeah, you know, just that that was that was it was great. Um, you know, to to see him and some of the other some oh, other love, folks um, that have been around for a long time. Bill Shevin gave a talk that was really important. Bill Shevin is the president of the HBCUS, mm. and um, and he gave a talk about sort of where we are and what we need to do. It was it was incredibly compelling. Mm. Um, I really I really appreciated that and and this whole um, idea of the friends of the pharmacopoeia and how the their need their through his leadership, they are bringing more transparency through to that process of how the homeopathic remedies make it through to sort of that approval process and the challenges that they face, mm-hmm. which is a really different conversation than the sort of grassroots amazing work that gets done through Americans for Homeopathy Choice. Oh my God, absolutely. Right? But it's two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another that's another thing about it. And I think this, for people who haven't attended a Joint American Homeopathy Conference, it is... You know, it's a um, it's a few days. It's three days. Um, sometimes there is pre-conference and post-conference activity, but mostly it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday with, you know, various speakers. And then there are social events. You know, there's a welcome drinks thing that happens, and then there's a dinner and dancing and awards, and, and there's a breakfast. So there, there are lots of opportunities for people to sort of not leave and go off on their merry way. And then there are um, lots of opportunities for people to leave and go on their merry way. Like uh, my favorite night is the Thursday night. Um, it's when everybody arrives before the Friday conference really begins, and that's when we usually host an impromptu dinner with mm. our friends and students, and you know, and colleagues. And we had we must have had eighteen. I think we had eighteen people at a table, long table. Um, we oh, were at least, yeah, 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 because it kept growing. Um, so the conference, if we we haven't said so, was in was in San Antonio on the Riverwalk. Um, well, in a hotel <laughs> that faced the Riverwalk, but um, there was we found a place that was right next to the river um, that was just a beautiful. You're welcome. Yeah, you found it right. So I, I while I was working. Yeah, while well, you went to <laughs> meetings. So so I um, but I do that anywhere. Like if I'm in a new city. And I've, you know, the, I, the, the, these days the lift or the Uber or the cab takes you to where you want to go. You find your room, put your bags down, and then you walk. Yeah. And what I do is I've always walked a block and then turn right 
a block and turn right, block and turn right, block and turn right. And theoretically, I should come back to where I started from. And then I do it again, but I just go broader and wider. And to just mark the kind of Wait, did I tell you that's how my grandmother learned to drive? Well, that's how she ended up driving. My grandmother, Tessie, on my dad's side, got a driver's license late in life. Grandma Tessie. She could only make right turns. (laughs) Eventually, she she just stopped driving. Anyway, sorry, it just reminded me of that. Imagine driving in a... Well, I mean, it might work in... It would work in New well, York. In, in New Jersey, you kind of can do that because yeah. there are jug handles. You know, right. you have to turn right to go left. So that would have served her. But, yeah, she could really only turn right. Anyway, that, that's, that's a total divergence. Yeah. Um, but you're really good like that. And you found you kind of surveyed the city to find the best cafe oh, I, I and found, bar. Yeah, I found the best bar for sure. I think you did. And the yeah. food was good. We ate there three nights in a row. <laughs> It's really nice, though, and I think people appreciate that when, yeah. you know, you're in a touristy city and, and people turn up, you know that you've provided a good service. Mm. Yeah, it was great. So, you know, the turning back to you and your presentation, I mean, yeah. there were some highlights, and, and you're right, Bill's uh, talk for me, that's, that's one I went to, and yours was the other, and in a way, kind of a similar message, yeah. a congruent message. Yeah. From both of those talks. I mean, his was not a an historical uh, conversation, but it was a kind of a state of the union almost. It, it really was. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and yours was um uh I'm gone I'm gone back and we're going into the archives together and the primary sources. Yeah. To relearn or rehear who we are and how on earth did we get here, you know? Um can I just share a moment? That was like sure. a total rock star moment for me. Uh-huh. Was um, getting to hang out a little bit with Franz Vermeulen, <laughs> who I, you know, we had met, but only briefly. When mm. uh, I, I had only, you've met him. Yeah, I mean, many, many times. times yeah. But I had only met him once in, I believe, in Colorado back in 2015 or That'll something. That'll be right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And really didn't have much time to talk. And this time. Um, Oh, you two geeked out. I know. I got to share with him about my research. And then we had planned to meet again, and we didn't have a chance. Like I said, it's so busy, but we're we're planning a Zoom meeting, and I'm so excited. Because I think that um, there is a, there's a kindred spirit in research and archival work and tracing down source material. And it was amazing to hear. I, and again, I didn't get to go to that I only got to go to two talks mm. um, because of the meetings. And I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to the recordings. Um, and of course, Franz and, and Linda Johnston's is one that's at the top of the list. And there was a mic drop moment, apparently, where Franz was talking about how <clears throat> Rus talks, there's some discrepancy about the substance. And mm. I, if I'm not mistaken, George Dimitriadis also pointed that out some time ago, didn't he, at another conference. Anyway, yep. but there, it was really, I, I found that, that that several students were talking about that moment. It was like a light shining around me, an angel singing, because it meant that people actually care about the validity of the materials from which they get their information and are interested in making sure that the medicines that are being delivered to people are delivered based on fact and yeah. not, you know, God knows what. I, I had a moment. I don't know if I've told you this. Maybe I have. But my um, moment uh, listening to France was actually, uh, I'm going to say, in 2007. Mm. And so what is that? That's 15 years ago. Yeah. And I was at, at that conference in Heidelberg. And he was talking. And it was it was a, an interesting conference with a lot of varied, varied speakers. And um, and his talk in the main hall, if I remember it right, I'm going to say it it was not as well attended as say Sankran's talk. And you know Sankran did a performance; it was just astonishing. Yeah, that really, was in know. his. Yeah. He was levitating during those years. <laughs> Pretty awesome. And um, and France did something very very different. He said, you know. And maybe I'm just making this up now, but there was a bit of an acknowledgement of that was a really interesting talk. Now let's now let's learn some facts. <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't disrespectful in any way no. at all. But it was I remember the hearing for the first time that well actually no Rajan you've got that part wrong you know because uh, capsicum 
is no longer classified as a solanaceae. And it was just like, oh, wait, oh, that's really interesting. And then there was another part of um, that talk where the Mullen uh, made reference to the crazy situation we somehow got into at the end of the 1800s, where the remedy that was chosen to treat uh, um, tuberculosis in humans from a from a nozo perspective was tub bov. Bov, yeah. Not tub human. But that would make sense because that would make it more of a similar well, it would than make an it isopathic similar. intervention. Yeah, and, and so I knew you were going to say that. But uh, I, but for me, that was like, a, oh, yeah, why don't we use basilinum? Why are we... Why is basilinum so poorly understood? And tabov is the dominant yeah. remedy that we feel like we know really clinically well. Well, in uh, so that really though that ties into my talk, which well, is yeah. But I want to I want to finish up first. Oh, so, I'm so sorry. I got Calm all excited. Down. I know you. You did. know how I get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got message but, message received. So so with respect, let yeah, me continue. Yeah. yeah, I'll just keep drinking my coffee. <laughs> So, what was that sound? Uh, that's the sound of uh, me going, oh, we don't have a decent proving of tuberculinum. And we certainly don't have a decent proving of basilinum. Yeah. And so I had the opportunity to do that. And that was the, the proving that I did in 2008 and then 2009. And was it, it was tuberculinum bovinum? That was... we, we did a proving of tubbov yeah. and then basilinum. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Is that what the research offices were? I know they're working on tuberculinum. Is it both? No, we're finished. We're finished the right. It only took 13 years. Yeah. But um, 14. And um, basilinum is the next cab off the rank. Oh, wow. So it'll be really interesting. So this really intersects actually with some of the things I was talking about in my presentation. Huh. All right. You may proceed. Well, because it really speaks to the pyrogenium sepsin Great. argument. Love it. So, so what's that? Well, uh, first I want to say because um, as we were talking about what was the what was this uh, podcast going to be about, and you had said to me, "Oh, do a recap of your talk," and I said, "Well, basically, I talked about my research before, but then I realized that actually my my conference presentation, which was in effect a presentation of my paper, was very different because it was geared toward homeopaths." Yeah. And that means it's a pull back the curtain moment. So mm. there's one thing to write for the historiography. There's one thing to to be unbiased, to just document facts, to just, you know, I mean, I was explaining the process, right? It's like you learn the what they call the field. You learn the information that is laid out in the in the field. Then you have to add something to the conversation through previously unused primary source material, create a new argument and defend that position. And so I had to I had to find a way to do that that would make sense to that, that people would care about who have written homeopathy off or who see it as what did I call it last time? Something nuisance. A peripheral nuisance. A peripheral nuisance. And so what actually got got my paper sort of acknowledged was this idea that homeopaths were actually legitimate scientists and that Constantine Herring introduced three substances into the Materia Medica, so, or I should say it a different way, isolated and used medicinally three substances that were not used in that way, were not even understood to be capable of use in a particular way for more than 50 years in the standard scientific world. So that was a huge deal. In other words, you, you, you know, and, and that to me is probably, that's a, an amazing moment where the next version of the textbook that emerges with the timeline of the history of medicine and yeah. the understanding of germ theory and microbiology and the development of all of that um, has got, now got to start somewhere else and it involves a homeopath well, that I, points I think in it. But like, what does it really take in the metaverse to get that to happen? Because I think my paper will need like a butt ton of citations to make its way to scholarship. Well, is my guess. So everybody start writing. I'm gonna have to write a lot of papers and cite myself. Well, that's exactly what so that it comes I, up. I expect you to be doing. Yeah, straight exactly. After this podcast. Well, I've already started looking at you know my <laughs> PhD programs because now I've gotten you know the so the process in in my field is 
that there's a terminal master's then going on to write the thesis, the beyond, mm. you know, to write the secondary dissertation. Anyway, but so so it was interesting though to think about taking what I had written for just for the standard historical documentation argument, and then say, well, but what what do the homeopaths need to know? Right. And that was it was um, it was really fun to do. It took me a little bit. It took a little bit more work than I thought because I sort of had planned, well, I will just share my, you know, share my findings. But I realized like, wow, no, there is, if I, if I have the opportunity to speak to people, I need to speak to people. I I need to be able to, um, you know, get some points across. Right. So the first thing was, of course, it really feels good to know that one of our own, one of our lineage had made scientific progress well ahead of the curve. It just speaks to a different way of thinking that Mm. we engage with. So that was cool. But then I was thinking about the consequences, right? Because there are inevitable consequences for, um, that come along with progress and consequences can be good, bad, or neutral, right? But there's just an, there's an outcome. And so as I sort of looked at Herring as a, Constantine Herring as a foil, he, it was, you know, he was a challenger to Hahnemann's philosophy from the get-go. And so what really happened, and I think this is sort of a big deal, and this is, this is a conversation I wish I could have with people who don't want to think about historical activity and who just want to do it their way. Mm-hmm. It's like not, I never want to say to somebody, don't, don't do you, um, because I believe that even in something that is the most, let's say, controversial there's always going to be a nugget of truth, always. There will always be something positive in any situation. That's what moves, you know, the universal energies forward. Mm-hmm. I would love it if people who who put their fingers in their ears and la, 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 when I start talking because they don't want to change what they're doing, mm-hmm. would actually hear some of the points that I think are important. And one of them is that I think... We need to we need to really understand what Hahnemann did, and it's not as hard as people think, Be- because there was a there because there was a lapse in teaching because of what happened in nineteenth century homeopathy and the decline based on practicing homeopathy in ways that were unrecognizable to the way that they were meant to be, you know, put into play. That we wound up with a century of darkness basically. Yep. And we had to rebuild. Like we talked about this earlier in podcast episodes about, you know, gratitude for how people kept education going mm. for a long time. And now here we are asked to do it again, right? Asked to now rebuild and to have a formalized educational process because we have an opportunity to work within the system in ways that actually could bring homeopathy back into a driver's seat as opposed to being in a sidecar. And when you say, you know, a period of darkness, you're talking from you know, let's say 1900 through the 1980s or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And what emerged was a lot of Kentian, post-Kentian homeopathy. It's interesting that that came out, isn't it? Yep. 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 And which is great, except that it misses something. And I think, Kent, you know, a lot of these incredible thinkers, especially those who are adding sort of the, you know, what I would call spirituality to homeopathy, it's like everybody knows that there's a flavor of that sort of divine that goes along with homeopathy. It's, you can't, you can't ignore that. You can, you can choose to be almost a concrete materialist about homeopathy, except that you know that it's energy medicine. You know that there is a way in which this operates differently, mm. right? Now, that being said, everybody takes their spin on what it means to recognize the divine in something. So what I tried to do in my talk was sort of acknowledge that, you know, with with Hahnemann's history, <clears throat> the, the ways in which he was able to bring forth information was a combination of, well, no, was scientific. But science in his time included magic. You know, everything from magic to medicine was in the same bucket. You know, poetry, just look at Goethe, read Goethe. You know, Goethe on science is a, is a wonderful book of essays, most of which are poems, you know, or written in a, in a, in a form of prose. Yep. 
And some of the questions that were being asked, like Goethe's color theory or Newton, you know, Isaac Newton. I mean, you look at all of these incredible thinkers, and then you have to see that it, over the course of time, the history of science sanitized all of that information, excluded what I'm going to refer to today as just as the divine, as a way to say it's the, it's the mystery that we can't, we can't quite define. So what has happened, I think, is that lots of incredible thinkers and healers are using the tools of homeopathy, and then the divine part becomes their special sauce. They do it in their way, and if they add in whatever their sort of practice is, because it's the language through which they can convey information. Now, Hahnemann was, you know, Western Christian. Mm. Lots of people have added Eastern philosophy to it. I I actually kind of like that because it it's just it's a very different way. It's not adjacent, it's separate. So you can hear it in another way without changing it, right? Like I'll often use an analogy to yoga philosophy as a way to describe all the different steps that you go through in order to really get sort of potentized in homeopathy, you know? You the yoga analogy I use is, you know, you start with asana and it's more about the body, but that's about connecting the body to the breath, which is about connecting the breath to the meditative and, you know, and um, um, sort of spiritual practice. And then you levitate, but people are thinking they enter into homeopathy, you know, in a three steps to levitation kind of a mode. You know, there are a lot of those shortcuts and bypasses, but... I, I totally get it. Uh, do, I, I use a different analogy, but yeah. What's your analogy? Miles Davis. <laughs> I love it. Go, go, do it. Yeah, it's great. I've used no, a similar one in yeah, other ways. Exactly, yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you want to play jazz, you know, you, you, you listen to great jazz exponents. And they didn't start with that. You right. Know? And so they learned music theory. Yeah. They, they know music. And they, they do foundational music theory for one, one year, 10 years, probably 20 years, 30 years. And... And then, then they start riffing. You could argue that some people just come into the world there knowing it. There are some it. exceptions, yeah. And I think we could say that that exists in homeopathy as mm. well. Mm. But you can't teach that to everybody. Uh, I, that's exactly it. And that's one of the troubles with sort of guru-led education, I think, anyway. Mm. But maybe that's because I'm not a guru. <laughs> it's really interesting. I had a conversation the other day in class. Someone, someone we got on to that. Oh, it might have been, I think it was Grace just asked what did you mean when you said this and th- that and it, well no she was being oh it was in the introduction to my textbook on uh, case management I actually said in all three and I said yeah that got me in a lot of trouble <laughs> but what she said was why is it that you know you you explicitly say that um, you've um, tried to move homeopathy away or homeopathy education away from an emphasis on the, the the teacher, the guru, and um, and I'm I gave some explanation, but actually the the thing I should have said is Richard Pitt wrote a chapter in my book, and it, it's titled "If you see Hanuman on the road, kill him." In other words, you know that's not Buddhist saying. Yeah, it, it's a beautiful book. If you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. That, that's actually written by. Um, this Jewish guy. Oh, what's his name? Sheldon Kopp. Beautiful. Um, I don't know him. Oh, it's, oh, it's extraordinary. I thought you were going to say, um, what's his name? Jack Cornf- Cornfield. No. No, 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 no. I believe what? the name is Sheldon Kopp. Wrote a couple of... What, what era is he from? 80s. Are you going to say 80s? Yeah, so that would... Sorry, we're, we're totally now riffing on into... Both of us have a... a have an interest in a past in, in well, the my, study of Buddhism. My teeth clearly philosophy. kicking in. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Good. No, but it's that idea that you've got to find the authority within. Yeah. You know, and it's that step on the shoulder of your teacher, you know, and, and, and be yeah. welcome there. And if your teacher doesn't want you there, then go find another teacher. Because, um, and while there could be some... Um, some development around devotional energy. I, th- I think there's no doubt about that. Don't turn that into that. That's not education. Right. That's well, not, the inherent in the word discipline is disciple. Right. Exactly. So or the, disciple is in discipline. It's right. <laughs> a better way to say. It. But at some it's, point, uh, the student's got to leave, and that's that's the the point of that that statement about, you know, if you see the Buddha on the road. Well, 
um, from the Italian mother, I would say the student doesn't have to actually leave, but establish independence and their own agency to be able to contribute. And if you've got a healthy organism, like, mm. you know, like we try to produce within AG and the uh, foundation, mm. it means you don't have to leave, but you can, you can assume your leadership position. And, you know, I mean, that's... And, and authority and the knowledge. You know? Exactly. Anyway, I'm but, not sure how I got onto that. How did I get but, onto I that? I mean, we just went down a cul-de-sac. Can we? So I'm going to come back because what we were talking about was going from the conversations with Franz Vermeulen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you were talking about tuberculinum, ah. bovinum, and basilinum. Got it. That's okay. Well done. And then I was saying about the arc of my talk and bringing that to you know, the homeopaths to get people to really listen. And one of the things that I feel is important is, so this, it's not just an, it's not a disciple worship honoring of Hahnemann, and yet it is in, in that Hahnemann, and, and I and I found this through the hard knocks of, of research that he really did figure it out. Like he legit mm. figured out a system of medicine that puts life into an organism that is otherwise losing life. That is the elixir of life. That is the philosopher's stone. That is, you know, that's an alchemical process. It is medical alchemy, right? And knowing, knowing, and having heard you talk about that before, that's the Van Helmont. Coming through a lineage, lineage. of which Van Helmont was likely right. one of the, you know, one of the pathways that right. Hahnemann had studied. And and so what I've been trying to do is to help people to, and, and, and it's really been, I've been interested to learn this. And when I've learned it, I've wanted to share it. And that is that if we can if we can be true to what Hahnemann figured out, you know, when he says, follow me, but follow me well, he's earned that. He's earned the the request for people to follow him well. And it's very interesting to look at how, I mean, without getting into all the weeds on it, basically Constantine Herring followed a path that led to, that, that got very much, that got homeopathy very much wound up in the scientific uh, evolutions of ni- the 19th century, which was about reductionism and germ theory. And it, and it continues to be a problem to today. What I was able to find through my research and explore in my talk was that he Herring was very much interested in medical alchemy, but he followed a different path, and he followed the path of Paracelsus, who was ultimately uh, interested in is in isopathy, mm. which isopathy, which is cure by same as opposed to cure by similar, is is like a magnet for reductionistic science mm. and would be, you know, the groove was already laid for 19th century homeopaths to follow that. And there was such a lure to it because it was considered science. So you could be scientific, you could be modern, you could create facilities where there were laboratories, or as you would say, laboratories, and there was you know, this isolation of pathogens and substances. And, you know, I walked people through this idea from germ theory to bacteriology to pathology, right? And, and, and which leads to an emphasis on causation of disease based on the substance you can isolate. I mean, Constantine Herring really kicked this off in the scientific world and his adjacency to, or his, you know, immersion in homeopathy was problematic, because it created a division, right? And so it, he he literally was a foil to Hahnemann. And through going through, you know, letters from Hahnemann to Herring. Now, of course, Hahnemann dies in 1843. Mm. Herring lives to 1880. So there was plenty of time from when germ theory and all the bacteriology really kicked in where, you know, Hahnemann wasn't there to, to really give him hell. But he did actually write in the sixth edition of the Organon, the footnote to aphorism 56, very specifically going up against Constantine Herring and his introduction of serinum, or what he then called saurine. And he says, you know, this is, this is nothing, but a, nothing but a calamitous result mm. will happen. And, and so I think that this is really important because Hahnemann says isopathy, it's not a bad thing, it's just a different thing. There are three types of medicine, allopathy, homeopathy, isopathy. Isopathy is different. 
it is not homeopathy. And he says, you know, people will come to this thinking that homeopathy and isopathy are the same. They're going to get it through their misunderstanding of vaccination. Mm. Vaccination and inoculation, meaning smallpox and the use of cowpox as a cure and a preventative. So the reason, and, and Hahnemann goes into great detail about this, the reason that the cowpox inoculation was so effective is that it was homeopathic, but it was homeopathic because it was a similar, not an exact. Mm. Now, this is the same thing that when you're talking about tuberculinum. So tuberculinum bovinum, that's why right away I jumped in and interrupted you. I couldn't help myself. Um, you know that joke, not, not. Who's that? Impatient cow. <laughs> Impatient oh, cow. Mo! <laughs> Anyway, that's what I used to say to my kids when they interrupted me, impatient cow, moo. Um, but the reason that I couldn't hold back is because, I know, such a rando. I couldn't hold back because it, your example was was really amazing, right? Because tuberculinum bovinum is a similar, basilinum is an exact. Mm. Now, Hahnemann also goes on and he says, I'm not against the use of morbific products. In other words, nosodes are not bad, mm. but you need a proving. And yes, you can find out some of the information from toxicology and clinical information, but you're not going to get everything, right? This is where aphorism 153 and aphorism 20 are about that very unique nugget of information that you can only get through approving. Mm. It cannot be intellectualized. And that is what tells the story. This is where we get into the divine. Right? So if we want to really get into the divine understanding of homeopathy, it comes through the proving, because the proving is what I call redemptive suffering, mm. right? Aphorism 20 is about the ways in which an otherwise healthy person suffers in service to others, right? Aphorism 20 says, I'm going to take time out of my nice, cushy life. I'm going to take a remedy and I'm going to get sick. And I'm going to do this because what happens to me will ultimately help someone else. And the hard work that goes into that, mm. yeah, that is, that's what I call redemptive suffering. That's what we give back, mm. right? It's very, very different. And so if you bypass that, if you bypass that, you can get decent results, but you don't get through the gate. You only get so far, mm. right? Now, if... If am I am I like going on a roll too much? No, but I got two hundred and eighty four questions. Can I just give the link for anyone who might be listening? Anyone who has survived this far? First Grandma <laughs> Tessie only make a right, then two impatient cow. Right. So so where I ended up in my talk, the example that I used in yeah. my talk was about so pulling all the threads together was that you reach the latter part of the 19th century and medicine is now fully in the hospital, surgeries are happening, anesthesia is widely used, which means you can keep people open for longer, which means there's a greater chance of infection. Yeah, And so there are all of these advances in medical science to ward off infection. One of them would be Listerism is the most widely known. He created the series of rituals, many of which are still done in operating theaters even today. Um, and he created the, this poofer machine to, to spray carbolic acid through the operating theater and into the open cavity of a person getting a surgery as a way to stop infection. Anyway, post-surgical infections were really problematic. And, and you knew if you were in an operating theater in a hospital room or recovery room and you smelled dung or, or rotting flesh, mm. you knew it was a problem because mm. that smell was evidence of putrefaction, mm. rotting, rotting flesh. And so uh, there was like, okay, so that... Lister and the germ theory guys are like, okay, well, we just have to kill all of the bugs, yeah? Then you've got the homeopaths who are operating according to similars who say, oh, well, if I smell this rotting flesh, then by way of analogy, by way of similarity, rotting flesh should produce the analog to this disease. Or one in nature come. 
can create that smell. Exactly. Right. So rotten meat. So yeah. you get this biochemist called Patterson in England who takes a bag of rotten meat, puts it in the sun in July for a certain amount of time. There's like the whole Is recipe. It, he's not the same Patterson as the Balnozer. Do you know what? It's not. But it did cross my mind mm. because I think that the, I think the Balnozer is Patterson. Patterson. Mm, got it. But I'm going to check. And I thought about that even when I was giving my talk. I was thinking about that. Anyway, the but the... Um, See, I listen. I know, which is remarkable. Thank you. Because you don't look at sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> when I have my eyes closed, I'm resting and listening fully. So in the moment, you're in the moment. You're so zen. I love that about you. <laughs> anyway, so um, so he, they they say we're gonna we're gonna make a remedy mm. out of a rotting flesh substance, so rotten meat, yep. and we're gonna potentize that and. That should be a remedy that is analogous to, curative of, any of these sort of septic, you know, um, uh, problems. Mm. Uh, Genius, right? At the same time, you have the reductionists Mm. who want to prove the byproduct of sepsis. Okay, so I presented this conversation between Herring and Swan. You know, Swan, Samuel Swan, homeopath from New York, he writes to Constantine Herring and he says, Dear doctor, have you ever potentized septic blood? And if so, can you send me some in the highest potency that you have? And Herring writes back and he says, You know, I haven't, all, all effects being different. And we're going to talk about that in just a sec. But he also um, said, but I know a guy. There's a guy called Wormley in Chicago. Everyone's He's, got a guy. Everybody's got a guy. He says, you know, let the chemists have at it. I bet they can find an answer for you. Mm. And that tells us so much about the conversations that were ha- being had in the making of medical knowledge in that part of the 19th century, right? So there are a couple problems in it. One is that, and, and this was a conversation that ha- was being had from 1800 on up, where homeopaths were arguing with the reductionistic people to say, how do you know if the morbific material that you extract from whomever is exactly where it comes from? And one of the examples that is used, I think I got this out of Dudgeon, somebody said, there's an argument, somebody says, well, we know that the blood in someone with measles carries the disease, but we know that if there is an eruption you know, with pus, that it's gonna be in the pus of any sort of malignant outputs. Well, is it always going to be the same? I mean, it's it's kind of an interesting thought. It's a really interesting thought, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so this, so I think that. In other words, it's it is that uh, it's the essence of reductionism because it is trying to find the 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 causative agent, right? And with the microscopes and the technology they had at the time, it made sense that for Sorine, it was the 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 pus. Yep. And for uh, sep- uh, what's the what's the name of the remedy? Sepsin. Sepsin. Um, it was it was whatever they could get. But was- I think these days they would go even more right. refined. You'd right? go into the blood. Yeah. Because what you know about sepsis is sepsis is not about the output and byproduct of the disease. Yeah. It, it's blood poisoning. Yeah. Coming it's- from a gal who had sepsis. And it's a- isn't that so interesting? Because in that century, you know, from a public health perspective. At the beginning of the century, diseases caused by you know the by the miasma you know yep. and and by the end you know with the cholera epidemics no it's not it's caused by water right infected that came water from this pump that came from that pump yep and uh, and public health tracing you know mechanisms right right so so but let's just finish here for a second right because if we stay at that point with mm. Herring and Swan and Pitt and Patterson mm. so there oh did I lose my train. No, no. Because you, you oh, because um, what Hahnemann Hahnemann wrote to Herring, and he mm. said, "Be mindful. If you are doing, and this was like in 1835, 1838, something like this." Mm. But he says to Herring, "Be mindful. Mm. If you are using products from an autopsy, you are getting the results of allopathic treatment." Don't rely, you know, chemistry and anatomy and physiology. He says in in Latin, sit modus et rebus, everything in moderation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now let's fast forward because what you get out of the morbific expulsion of a septic eruption, right? The um, exudate mm. is 
is dead material. It's not the live material. The live material has moved into the bloodstream. Mm. So is that is that going to be homeopathic? Well, the only way you know is by approving, you know, and a comparative proving. I love what you're talking about with tuberculinum. Now, now if we look at this, so one of the problems and one of the things that I brought up um, was, okay, well, there are arguments in the journals. I looked at one of the journals, the New York Homeopathic Medical Journal, 1909, I believe, so shortly thereafter, and they're saying, Okay, you got pyrogenian and you've got sepsin. Well, in the Materia Medica, is so-and-so using this one or that one? And then somebody responds and says, well, they're basically the same. Well, no, they're not the same. No, they're not. They're not the same at all, but they're often used interchangeably. Right. When you think about it, I mean, uh, that point, because I heard that point, I sort of drifted off and didn't drift off, but, you know, I went into my own sort of horror corner because, look, imagine... For a um, a consumer of homeopathy, you go and buy some Waron product. That will come in the nice similar blue tubes. And, you know, you choose that one or that one. You know, you're at the Whole Foods. And you've got no idea about the history of that and how that, in- right. how that label got on there. And I don't mean from a manufacturing point of view, but I mean even before then. Because the quality of the proving of gelsemium, where that original information came from, is not the same to the quality of the information of the proving of pyrogenium. Right. And so Swan was kind of an interesting guy. Oh, he was so interesting. But, you know, it's like, so there's some, I mean, uh, top topic for another day. There are some horrifically, appallingly bad proving examples that have got mushed up, messed yeah. up, and put into our beautiful textbooks that makes the... the the, the reader think that all information is the same. All the same. And in the digital age, oh even God. more so. You 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 do a repertorization yeah. and a remedy comes up. And if you don't go back to see, was that remedy proved appropriately? Who added that? Yeah. What's their bias? Like that, that example, oregano. You know oregano? Yeah. The, what's the major symptom in it? Uh, I can only think of something that I don't want to say. Because oh. there's a problematic symptom in there for me. Anyway, go ahead. Well, there is a problematic symptom because you need to know that the proving population, the sample, like, oh, provings are great, right? No, because they used prepubescent girls from a monastery as the as the provers. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to have to read that immediately. Right. And so, you know, the, uh, the symptom, whatever it is, the keynote, I've forgotten it now, is coming out of the... Is coming out of this this particular sample, and it's just it's one of a thousand examples yeah. of questionable provings. Well, totally, and okay, and if we talk about uh, one of the other things that I brought up was herring and saurine, what he called saurine, which we now call serinum. So, so first of all, I've seen all over the shop people saying that Hahnemann proved serinum. He did not, mm. you know, and I have. I mean, so and says it though. He's got it. I know. But he also, one of the things we talked about is how he's made corrections over time. And it could just have been, you know, it's in Yasgur's dictionary. I was looking up how does Yasgur define nosodes, and he says serinum was proved by Hahnemann. And it's like, Mm. no. And it took me a while. Remember, I was trying to find this a couple of years ago, and I was going through all the primary source material I had on herring. And it wasn't until, it was actually hiding in an obvious place. It was in Dudgeon's. I got it out of Dudgeon's lectures, lecture six on isopathy. And then that opened the door and I could find the article that, you know, Herring had written. So he, the first article he had written was in 1830. He was still in Suriname. And he, he acquired the pus from an otherwise healthy person. He called them rather large pustules. And it was a person who had handled some, quote, stuff from Germany. What does stuff from Germany mean? I have no idea. And Maybe it was snuff. Maybe it's a type. <laughs> I think it was stuff. Anyway, but carry that forward because then he he produces some other experiments in the 1850s, late 1850s. Mm. So then the question that I had to pose to everybody was, same pus, different pus? How did he... What did he do with that pus? You mean from the point of view of how's that remedy made? How's that remedy made? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we still using that same pus? 1800s pus? Who was this person? I reckon I mean, we need to interview... Um, who should we interview? Foxman? Eric Foxman? Oh, there's so many. I want to I have a Mike panel. Dunn. 
I want to have a panel. I, I need to know. I have all these questions. I want to know about all the animal milks. I mean, I've got, you know, some of the old ones like Lacanonum, some of the new ones. So it's interesting, right? So you look at some of like Nancy Herrick's provings. Like when I teach that lecture, like that suite of lectures that I teach on critical thinking in, in contemporary materia medica, and we go through the provings. And, you know, you can talk about different proving methodologies and if people, whatever, however they're doing their provings. But one of the things that we do know about is where the substance material comes from in great detail with some of these newer provings. You know, like all those stories, I love the background stories Nancy Herrick tells about how you know, Melissa Asalam was able to get the wolf's milk and how they brought it down and how they got the elephant milk from this elephant that was in um, uh, in a zoo. And there was this one elephant that had a calf and wasn't interested in nursing. Then there was another elephant whose calf died who had all this milk. And there was like a whole, you know, a whole thing going on. I mean, those are really interesting stories. And now I can imagine that we're working from source material those remedies probably aren't so, so widely used, although who knows, um, but are they all coming from the same source material? But it's at least contemporary. So you can go, okay, that's from the 90s or something. Yeah. But what about, you know, the the dog from the Lacaninum proving? See, I, I didn't want to say it, but I thought it was a, uh, I was going to say it's not a border collie. It's a terrier. You know, I, yeah, that's interesting. It's a terrier. And they said it was chosen because terriers had such a fondness for humans. Who was the, it's the, somebody's wife. Do you remember what I was researching the story anyway? But, but I think, you know, I, I had mentioned during my talk about having a panel mm. to really talk about this because, you know, you've got, you've got so many like side conversations that are going on around homeopathy and people coming up with all their own methods and all this kind of stuff. When in reality, there's a there's a sort of a core issue to discuss that's a really fascinating one. I mean that's one thing. The second thing, and then I'll then I'm gonna stop. But the second thing, and maybe this is a conversation for another day, is that one of the things that's always surprising to me is there are lots of ways that people sort of package uh homeopathic analysis. Like right now, the creation of systems is a really big deal and has been for mm. For a while, but probably since Sankaran's introduction of his sy- systems, and oh, then Schultz and Sankaran, yeah, yeah, they, I mean that both they both kicked off at around the same time, right? Mm-hmm. But it's so interesting because there are all these ways in which Hahnemann gave us a system, mm. and it's once you sort of understand it, it's not that hard. I mean, it's hard, right? But it's not that hard. It's just characteristic symptoms knowing the difference between acute and chronic disease, understanding chronic diseases and how that influences the, the sort of um, evolution of a case and how it unravels over time. Mm. But I think, and maybe this is really a story for another day, but I think a lot of it has gotten wrapped up in the Similima mythology. Mm. Do you think? I do. I really do. Although that would not be the case for like polarity folks because they're not looking for a Similima. I mean, they're acknowledging sort of a different thing. Similar. Yeah. Anyway, gosh, so much to discuss. We haven't discussed the thing that I wanted you to discuss, the highlight of your talk. What was that? Um, Describing twice um, what it was like to unwrap the book (laughs) in Transylvania. (laughs) That that, You love this part. That was funny. Well, because until, I mean, you know, until living in Philadelphia. I've got no idea what a hoagie is. Okay, so, um, <laughs> all right, we'll end with this. Is that okay? Yeah, That's sure. hilarious because I don't, you know, like sometimes when you deliver a talk, you're in the moment. Like I get in the zone and then like sometimes you'll say to me after I've given a lecture, you're like, wow, I really, you know, that was great. Da, da, da. And I'm like, tell me about it. And you're like, you just did it. I have no recollection whatsoever. So, um, so I spent quite some time in Transylvania. So in Sibiu, Romania, where Hahnemann spent almost two years. It was like 18, 19 months. Hermannstadt. Hermannstadt. Um, from 1777 to 1779. And he, um, what he was doing was he was cataloging the work of the Baron von Brückenthal. Um, and they, it's now Brückenthal's castle and library. And so I was in the basement of the castle. 
um, in the restricted section. Um, and I spent some time going through this like stack of folios that Hahnemann and a scribe created, which was basically like the card catalog, except that it's in a, you know, it's in a book mm. of all of what the Baron von Brückenthal had. And my goal was to look at every book that Hahnemann would have laid eyes on to see if I could trace the this particular alchemical lineage that I had been postulating that was his his influence. Anyway, so they it was really funny because I had to like prove myself. I had to keep coming back. Like they would say, yeah, you're going to get in today. No, you're not going to get in. Oh, we're having a conference today. Come. And then they would ask me to speak for a little bit at a conference. I mean, it was like the craziest time. Anyway, then finally they, they let me in. <laughs> and they bring out this precious treasure that I had been waiting, you know, like kneeling, kneeling at the door to see, and they bring it out and it's wrapped in deli paper, like a hoagie. <laughs> and then they handed like me, a Philly like a Philly cheesesteak, not a cheesesteak, because that's hot. They, the, a cheesesteak would be like in foil, oh, paper okay. lined foil. Right. But this would be like a cold sandwich, like a hoagie, like, you know, wrapped in like butcher paper. It was butcher paper. Right. Right. And then they From gave the me. Right, and instead of giving me the white gloves, like, you know, which they don't even really use much anymore, but, like, when you work with archival material, they usually give, you're wearing gloves to protect the oils from your hands, right? So, like, so usually what happens, you go into an archive, and, like, there are all these rules, they take your bags, you hang them up in another room, you only bring pencils, right, you don't bring a pen, so you go in with your computer, oh, dear, there's Al's phone. Yeah. So you go in with your computer and your pencil and your paper, and now you bring your um, your phone and your iPad, because generally what you're doing, especially if you don't have a lot of time in an archive, is you're taking photos of things. Like I would go, most of my time spent in the archive was, you know, skimming things to see if it was information I needed, and then I've got this whole system of how I would document it, right? Taking pictures with my iPad, making notes on the screen, you know, you, you put all these notes so you can find it again and reference it, blah, 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 right? So I'm sort of used to this, and everything goes on like a cradle, and you're wearing your white gloves. That's and, right, you have that yeah, thing. That they're Right. You've yeah. got this, you know, and they have different cradles for different, you know, sized materials. Like it's a, it's a ritual effect. And, you know, it's, and you learn about this, like when you are studying, you know, history, one of the things they teach you is like how not to be, you know, kind of dumb in an archive, right? Yeah, yeah, this yeah, is what yeah. you do. This is what you don't do. No food, no drink. You can't, no water, right? Think about it. You could like kill an ancient <laughs> manuscript. So like I roll up in Transylvania and like they make me wait and I'm waiting, waiting. I finally get in. They sit me down with all my stuff, including a coffee, right? Yep. At a At just a desk and, yeah. and then they bring it out in deli paper. And then they handed me blue deli gloves. So I was like analyzing a sandwich. I mean, it was just, it was stunning. Yeah, it was. And of course, why that is so extraordinary is because of the single deli glove phenomena. The what? The phenomena that you taught me about. Whenever you're in New York City and you look down, you always see, (laughs) you always just see one deli glove. You, you never see two. You never do. You always see one like random one deli glove. One random deli glove. You know, uh, and you would think that, like as a souvenir, I would have brought one blue glove home with me. Well, you might have. I didn't. No, you didn't. Mm-mm. I was too. I was too into it, but I was really shocked. And it was interesting because this is what happened. You know, in Romania, um, there was. You know, I mean. I don't know enough about the history of Romania, but they really didn't have, there was no money for maintaining this archive. So everything, and, and you know, I make light of it just because I had this expectation of, you know, I thought that it was going to have, you know, stardust coming out of it. And it was literally, you know, a stack of folios in deli paper. But um, they, do you remember, I, they let you come in with me that one day? Mm-hmm. You came in for like a half a day. And do you remember the librarian who was a very stern woman who sat and watched me the whole time that I was there, but she went into the back room and do you, you were there when I tried to stick my head in? Do you remember into that? Into the back room? Into the back room because I wanted to see sort of where everything was kept. She came, she gave me the eye. She was a woman of few words, if you recall. <laughs> She didn't really say much. Right. She gave me the eye, and then she kind of, you know, directed me out and back to my seat, and right. I had to sit politely. I'm also reminded that I saw there was a map department. Yeah. 
and a whole lot of amazing maps, including some strange ones where whole countries had been systematically cut out of the map. You spent some time, when I was doing that work, you went through and yeah. were going through that those maps. I have a few pictures of that. Yeah. I wonder why, you know, like, why is Moldova not no longer in this map? Right. Yeah. Anyway. What fun. All um, right. I would say this is another one done. Fantastic. We, we probably talked much longer than we should have. Um, it's time to go. Um, thanks so much. Hey, folks, um, we'll see you next time. We're going to do it again. All right. Take care. See you, everyone. AHE is changing the face of homeopathy education by raising the bar through rigorous academics an unparalleled clinical training delivered live through the soulful use of cutting-edge technology. AHE prepares its students to become fully rounded homeopathic practitioners from anywhere in the world. Apply today and ask about the early enrollment discount at ahe.online. 